Chapter One of Beasley's Christmas Party by Booth Tarkington. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Beasley's Christmas Party by Booth Tarkington. Chapter One. The maple-bordered street was as still as a country Sunday, so quiet that there seemed an echo to my footsteps. It was four o'clock in the morning. Clear October moonlight misted through the thinning foliage to the shadowy sidewalk, and lay like a transparent silver fog upon the house of my admiration. As I strode along, returning from my first night's work on the Wainwright morning dispatch, I had already marked that house as the finest, to my taste, in Wainwright, though hitherto, on my excursions to this metropolis, the state capital, I was not without a certain native jealousy that Spencerville, the county seat where I lived, had nothing so good. Now, however, I approached its purlieus with a pleasure in it quite unalloyed, for I was at last myself a resident, albeit only of one day's standing, of Wainwright, and the house, though I had not even an idea of who lived there, part of my possessions as a citizen. Moreover, I might enjoy the warmer pride of a next-door neighbor, for Mrs. Applethwaite's, where I had taken a room, was just beyond. This was the quietest part of Wainwright. Business stopped short of it, and the fashionable residence section had overleaped this forgotten backwater, leaving it undisturbed and unchanging, with that look about it which is the quality of few urban quarters, and eventually of none, as a town grows to be a city, the look of still being a neighborhood. This friendliness of appearance was largely the emanation of the homely and beautiful house which so greatly pleased my fancy. It might be difficult to say why I thought it was the finest house in Wainwright, for a simpler structure would be hard to imagine. It was merely a big old-fashioned brick house, painted brown and very plain, set well away from the street among some splendid forest trees with a fair spread of flat lawn. But it gave back a great deal for your glance, just as some people do. It was a large house, as I say, yet it looked not like a mansion but like a home and made you wish that you lived in it. Or, driving by of an evening, you would have liked to hitch your horse and go in. It spoke so surely of hardy, old-fashioned people living there who would welcome you merrily. It looked like a house where there were a grandfather and a grandmother, where holidays were warmly kept, where there were boisterous family reunions to which uncles and aunts who had been born there would return from no matter what distances a house where big turkeys would be on the table often, where one called the hired man, and named either Abner or Ole, would crack walnuts upon a flat iron clutched between his knees on the back porch. It looked like a house where they played charades, where there would be long streamers of evergreen and dozens of wreaths of holly at Christmas time, where there were tearful happy weddings and great throwings of rice after little brides, from the front broad steps. In a word, it was the sort of a house to make the hearts of spinsters and bachelors very lonely and wistful, 
and that is about as near as I can come to my reason for thinking it the finest house in Wainwright. The moon hung kindly above its level roof in the silence of that October morning as I checked my gait to loiter along the picket fence. But suddenly the house showed a light of its own. The spurt of a match took my eye to one of the upper windows. Then a steadier glow of orange told me that a lamp was lighted. The window was opened, and a man looked out and whistled loudly. I stopped, thinking that he meant to attract my attention, that something might be wrong, that perhaps someone was needed to go for a doctor. My mistake was immediately evident, however. I stood in the shadow of the trees bordering the sidewalk, and the man at the window had not seen me. "'Boy? Boy?' he called softly. "'Where are you, simple Doria?' He leaned from the window, looking downward. "'Why, there you are!' he exclaimed, and turned to address some invisible person within the room. "'He's right there, underneath the window. I'll bring him up.' He leaned out again. "'Wait there, simple Doria,' he called. "'I'll be down in a jiffy and let you in.' Puzzled, I stared at the vacant lawn before me. The clear moonlight revealed it brightly, and it was empty of any living presence. There were no bushes, nor shrubberies, nor even shadows that could have been mistaken for a boy, if simple Doria was a boy. There was no dog in sight. There was no cat. There was nothing beneath the window except thick, close-cropped grass. A light shone in the hallway behind the broad front doors. One of these was opened and revealed in silhouette the tall, thin figure of a man in a long, old-fashioned dressing gown. Simple Doria, he said, addressing the night air with considerable severity. I don't know what to make of you. You might have caught your death of cold roving out at such an hour. But there, he continued more indulgently, wipe your feet on the mat and come in. You're safe now. He closed the door, and I heard him call to someone upstairs as he rearranged the fastenings. Simple Doria's all right, only a little chilled. I'll bring him up to your fire. I went on my way in a condition of astonishment that engendered almost a doubt of my eyes, for if my sight was unimpaired and myself not subject to optical or mental delusion, neither boy nor dog nor bird nor cat nor any other object of this visible world had entered that open door. Was my finest house then a place of call for wandering ghosts who came home to roost at four in the morning? It was only a step to Mrs. Applethwaite's. I let myself in with the key that good lady had given me, stole up to my room, went to my window, and stared across the yard at the house next door. The front window in the second story, I decided, necessarily belonged to that room in which the lamp had been lighted, but all was dark there now. I went to bed and dreamed that I was out at sea in a fog, having embarked on a transparent vessel whose preposterous name, inscribed upon glass life-belts, depending here and there from an invisible rail, was Simple Doria. End of chapter 1 Recording by Arnold Banner, Clemens, North Carolina